G'day Ice Coffee listeners. Episode 52 is a bit of a mixed bag in terms of audio. I tried recording in different places with different levels of success, but I'm thinking it's probably a bit more interesting than another session in the pretend dive hut, and I'm very excited to have been to the places that I've taken my recorder. The bulk of episode 52 was recorded in my cabin, which I share with Phil, who's a top bloke, and whom I'm hoping to catch an interview with for a future episode. Well, who'd have thunk it? I'm recording in the doorway of the hangar at what was formerly Base B on Deception Island. And it's snowing heavily and I'm more than a little surprised to be here. I didn't think I'd get back to Antarctica without more effort than I've put in and I didn't expect to be recording an episode of Ice Coffee here, certainly. First impressions of the Antarctic Peninsula, it's much warmer, much wetter than my experiences in the Ross Sea. Actual snow falling from the sky is a new experience for me here, um, where the Ross Sea is mostly getting snow that's been blown off the Antarctic Dome, and the air is incredibly dry. Here, uh, you might be able to hear water dripping from the corrugated iron roof as the temperature gradually warms up in the summer and the snow that's hitting the tin is melting almost straight away. The, the whaling station that's still in evidence here kicked off in 1912 so it's, a, it's an apt moment in the iced coffee narrative to be speaking about the company that were operating out of here. The point in whaling history <coughs> that they started operations here, the British were starting to kick up. They thought that the whales belonged to them and everyone should pay attention to their rules about using whales. So no more just stripping the blubber off, getting the high quality oil from the whales, the easy to get oil from the whale blubber. You had to use the whole whale. So while most of the whale blubber was still being rendered in factory ships in, the, in Whalers Bay here, the carcass, the, the meat and the skeletons would be sent ashore and rendered down in high pressure, high temperature operations for a lower quality oil. The meat would then be dried and sent north as stock feed and the skeleton would be rendered into fertiliser. Far more efficient and it didn't end up littering the bay with dead whale carcasses. I love my history but I'm glad the place doesn't smell as it once did. But this episode needs to finally get moving and I doubt I'm going to nail it in one go. I'm going to be talking about a few different things at the moment and heading north to speak about activities in the Arctic that have some bearing on activities later on in Antarctica. So, as mentioned at the end of episode 51, there are still a few things to say about the Australian Antarctic Expedition. I thought I could knock it out in one last hit, but I was wrong. There's a small, but to me, significant flash of Mawson-based recognition yet to recount. In 19... We've got a rattle seal down the end here. Okay, okay, uh, staff on shore, staff on shore. Uh, Vonners has got a weddle, I guess has recently come out. Is that at the end of the beach? Yeah. Yeah, right at the end, just popped out the water. Yeah. Okay, good copy. Again, staff on shore, Yvonne's got one weddle, one weddle at the end of the uh, shoreline below the window. 
like my colleagues, but they can't pronounce Waddell. So, in 1984, I was 11 years old, and the Australian dollar bought you a lot more at the milk bar than it does now. So while the Australian Mint printed the first $100 notes that year, I didn't see many. Still don't, come to think of it. My father got one the week they came out, and my awe at seeing that much money in one blue piece of paper was matched by that from seeing Douglas Mawson, known throughout my childhood as Sir Douglas Mawson, because knighthood, represented on the obverse, a word I didn't know at the time, but now recognise as being the reverse of the reverse side. The reverse of that note pictured astronomer John Tebbett looking sad, perhaps about being on the reverse, when the observatory he was pictured in front of could have been observed as the obverse observatory, if anyone at the Mint put value on such linguistic symmetries. But I digress. But you already knew that. It was seeing our national Antarctic hero celebrated on money that could be used by everyone, well, everyone a bit better off than me, every day that worked the magic. Though this is all doubly academic, because besides not handling many of these iconic, to me, notes, as they only remained in circulation for 12 years before Australia switched from paper to polymer notes, Mawson and Tebbett giving way to the opera diva Dame Nellie Melba and the engineer and general Sir John Monash, who will get further mention in episodes featuring Sir Hubert Wilkins, Australia's other major Antarctic player in the heroic era, I still don't see many of these notes, even with the deflated value of the Australian dollar. The electronic era removed most cash transactions from my life, what with me not buying recreational drugs or shopping at hippie markets. This, I think, makes a neat circuit back to the printing and franking of stamps at Antarctic bases as a means to highlight a nation's association with the continent. Britain has been particularly active on that front, publishing stamps commemorating the achievements of British sailors, explorers and scientists, as well as those from expeditions that had less than nothing to do with Britain, sometimes actively working to supplant British efforts in a given area, as though by taking them into the philatelic fold the Royal Post has thrown them a bone for their efforts without actually recognising those efforts as on par with analogous efforts when performed by good British stock. Well done, nation. We see what you did. Yeah, we do. Who's a good nation? Mawson's use on the Australian $100 note kept alive the National Association with Antarctica as an everyday thought, and whether or not that influences other nations' perception of the association, it did its bit in keeping that association alive on the home front. If you've got to have the money in circulation, one way or another, printing Mawson's mug on one side seems a good way to promote an idea at no additional cost. The five-way race to get south around 1912 yielded a lot of new information and insights about Antarctica and what humanity could and couldn't expect to get up to down there. But world events were about to overtake most, but not all, ambitions to work below the circle. But the precursors to the First World War were manifold and intertwined, giving rise to competing ideas about what contributed most and what might have acted as an effective circuit breaker to the years of bloodshed that kicked off in 1914. It might be that had Archduke Ferdinand not been assassinated in Sarajevo, the war would have started regardless, but his death is generally accepted as the touch paper that lit the firework that killed tens of millions of soldiers and civilians and maimed many more. And I think the same is true of many of the other factors that contributed. Once committed to the fight, the leading nations on both sides brought to bear the huge arsenals of devastating weapons developed and accumulated in the past 20 years. While applying the effective defensive mechanisms of trench warfare protected soldiers against bombardment, the recently perfected machine gun prevented effective offensive tactics in a trench warfare setting, 
bogging the opposing sides down whenever they joined battle, making attrition the key factor. Whoever kept pumping men and munitions into the situation would eventually win. A horrendous but valid and sound logical syllogism, with humans as one of its premises and corpses as part of its conclusion. Unfortunately, the same human ingenuity that made machine guns as deadly effective as they were was also at work in mining, refining and manufacturing processes. Raw material supply lines and factories set to a wall footing managed to keep up the supply side of the attrition equation, while social pressures and propaganda on the home front, and in some cases conscription, kept up the supply of young men. This confluence of the will to fight with the means and the men to fight with saw the war last far longer than anyone anticipated. Not the longest war human history throws up by any means, but the most concentrated period of protracted brutality humanity wrought upon itself to date. Many of the men of the Antarctic Expedition Confluence of 1912 went to war and some of them didn't return. With one exception, slated for some iced coffee attention in coming episodes, the war halted Antarctic exploration and things didn't ramp up again until some years after the armistice. Another international consideration pushing Antarctic exploration in the direction it went, but which was not necessarily the direction it must take, was the lack of anything of direct financial value arising in the south. Coal seams and evidence of precious metals were all well and good, but you can't eat off the geographic knowledge alone, and the cost of establishing and supplying mining operations in the far south, and uncertainty over who owned what and who might institute counterclaims or tariffs on Antarctic exports, outweighed the perceived benefits of putting in the hard yards and cash. To the date this series covers to date, the hinterland and inland regions of the southern continent yielded interesting anecdotes, images, maps and scientific papers, but nothing as obviously exploitable as the seals and whales already given such a thorough ecological caning. I'm also going to take this hodgepodge episode as an opportunity to recount some goings on in the Arctic that held significance in the South a few years later. Born William Stevenson, and later changing his name to better reflect his Icelandic heritage, the first hint that we might be discussing a show pony, Wilhelmar Stephenson spent his youth on the prairies of North Dakota. Arrogance-mediated faltering starts in tertiary education eventually saw him studying comparative religion at the Harvard Divinity School paying his way by moonlighting as a reporter. Stephenson hoped to work as a field anthropologist in Africa, but an invitation to work in the Arctic came his way and he seized it. The ship carrying him north wrecked, but rather than putting out a distress signal or attempting self-rescue, Stephenson lived with the local Inuit for a year, becoming fluent in the local language and learning how to survive indefinitely using the resources the Arctic offers. In 1908, he kicked off a four-year sojourn above the Arctic Circle, living off the land. It was on this journey he claimed discovery of, and living among, a tribe of blonde Inuit. The copper Eskimos, he described in his writing, allegedly comprised a race descended from wrecked Vikings living in the same climes as the innately dark-haired Inuit, known everywhere else in the Arctic to this day. Stephenson began planning for a return north immediately on his return south garnering $45,000 in expedition funding from the American Museum and the National Geographic Society, both interested in the Copper Eskimos and in any mineral wealth that might arise from the exploration of the landmass Peary claimed to site on his way to the North Pole. When Stephenson approached the Canadian government to make up the estimated $30,000 funding shortfall, 
They agreed to come to the party so long as the US backers were dropped so Canada could revel in all the glory and claim all the claims. When it came to check signing time, they balked, and Stephenson, already in the hole with the preparations made to date, was forced to purchase the glaringly inadequate wooden hulled, fishing come whaling come lying in idle in port and slowly rotting, Barkatine rigged Carluke for $10,000. Stephenson paid an additional $6,000 for immediate repairs just to make the hulk seaworthy, though still a long way from ice ready. Hired to navigate the Carluke north, Captain Pedersen took a look at the ship and Stephenson's preparations and got shot of the expedition quick smart. Hired to navigate the Carluke north after Pedersen sensibly demurred, Captain Robert Bartlett, a veteran of two voyages with Peary aboard the ice-strengthened Roosevelt, sent Stephenson a damning report on the state of the ship, stating clearly that he would only leave port aboard her on the agreement that they would not stay above the Arctic Circle through the winter. Certain that the hull would not withstand the pressure the ice would bring to bear on the aged timbers if she was frozen in. Stephenson enlisted the services of Australian adventurer and photographer, cinematographer, George Hubert Wilkins. Like Mawson, Wilkins grew up in South Australia as part of a farming family whose fortunes were tied to, catastrophically, the fickle sequence of droughts that helped make Australia the tinder-dry continent we know and love today and which is on fire. Also like Morton, Wilkins wanted to better understand the weather patterns that affected Australia to better predict and thereby to better weather the weather and saw meteorological stations at high latitudes as a key plank in any attempt to achieve that new level of climatological understanding. Also brought into the Carluke fold, Dr Alistair Mackay, already inured to high latitude work through his time with Shackleton at Cape Royds and the associated trek to the South Magnetic Pole with Douglas Mawson and Edgeworth David. His previous work in the North being matters organised by others or solo peregrinations. Stephenson turned out to be not much good at organising an expedition, but couldn't bring himself to acknowledge the But couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that deficit to anyone, muddling along as an anthropologist doing a Chandler's job and making a pig's ear of it. Contrary to Bartlett's requirements, Stephenson made last-minute press releases about his expectations that after sailing as far as possible to the north, the ship would be crushed in the ice, the explorations thereafter taking place independent of its maritime support. Good. Can you confirm what time is the last zodiac? Yeah, it's just uh, 12.35, just after 12.30. Last uh, group in was in at 10.35, 12.35, all staff last zodiac. The explorations thereafter taking place independent of its maritime support. He also drew up legal documents precluding anyone else publishing on their voyage experiences for two years after its completion, though he didn't inform the scientific contingent about this stipulation until after the Carluke sail. Casting aside all complaints as fake news, Stephenson pushed on with his badly laid plans, which go aglay even more often than the best laid ones. And the Carluke departed Port Clarence, Alaska, on the 26th of July, 1913. A week later, in spite of an ill wind in the form of a month early blizzard, sea ice encountered after just six days, and Bartlett's suggestions that they turn around and head back to port, Stephenson insisted the Carluke press on, and, 
given Bartlett's reputation as a no-nonsense mariner, I think this speaks to how powerfully manipulative a really driven narcissist can be. The captain should decide where the ship goes, not the grandstanding egomaniac. The ship became fast set in the pack on the 6th of August. A ship result for all involved. Not as far north as Stephenson desired, and not as not locked in the sea ice as Bartlett's agreement to sail on the Carluke stipulated. As the sailors spoke of deserting, Stephenson and the Inuit guides began laying in a supply of seals preparatory to the long winter Stephenson's press releases presaged. Stephenson announced he was going on a caribou hunt, which surprised his team because he'd been at pains to tell everyone the caribou were all but extinct in the region. Stephenson took Wilkins, his personal assistant, another anthropologist and two of the Inuit guides, and a dozen of the best sled dogs, and a large stock of supplies. On the 20th of September, Stephenson posed dramatically for some newsreel footage, captured by Wilkins, and left the ship. He would never see the Kaluk or half the people he left aboard it again, on account of their dying the death, and later wrote of knowing that the vessel would never again move under its own power. Stephenson kicked off his caribou hunt, air quotes, just shy of the point at which the currents below the ice really take hold, and they began carrying the ship on its arctic swirly ride. The Kaluk, not being built to withstand ice pressure in the first instance, and old and poorly maintained in the second and third, stood a better chance of ending that ride in a fashion analogous to that of the Jeanette than it did that of the Fram. Recall that the matchwood wreckage of the former was spat out on one side of the Arctic after having entered the other, setting the oceanographic stage for Fritjof Nansen's extremely well-prepared northern drift aboard Colin Archer's extremely well-designed and built Fram. Stephenson left Captain Bartlett in charge of 22 men, the Inuit wife of one of the remaining Inuit guides, and her two children, aged five and three years. Dogs Act. With the ship drifting as much as 30 nautical miles a day, Bartlett, the only person aboard who realised the full extent of their plight, began making preparations for the coming winter, insulating the ship with snow banked against the hull and preparing snow shelters and a fuel cache on the surrounding ice as contingencies against the ice crushing the Kaluk. Bartlett put a brave face on the circumstances, adopting a friendly and encouraging manner he thought likely to help foster a cooperative environment in the looming winter darkness. Mackay and the three other remaining members of the scientific contingent found this contrast to the distant formality of other ships' captains they'd sailed under disquieting, and the dishevelled mariner, who preferred a well-worn boiler suit to a captain's uniform, through his best efforts at maintaining equanimity, accidentally sowed the seeds of distrust among the more educated men aboard. The Inuit woman began making waterproof sealskin boots for the 25 people aboard the Kaluk, and Bartlett set everyone to task sewing their own fur clothing under her tutelage. Those dogs Stephenson had the opportunity. Those dogs Stephenson didn't take hunting, while the lesser in terms of sledging fettle, were treated with great care in the hope that they might yet serve to help save the lives of those left behind. But the fractious bastards fought viciously, taking matters to the death at every opportunity. The best efforts to keep them from tearing each other apart 
Hampered as they were by the regular shifts from the ship to the ice, as the creaking and groaning of the old hulk came and went as the ice pressure mounted and then fell away again, couldn't prevent the Carluke's dog pack of B and C grade sled dogs gradually shrinking. On the 2nd of January, the ice pressure began mounting a final assault on the Carluke's already badly leaking hull. Over the course of a week, the rising intensity of the per square inches made the timbers squeal as though in pain, and the sewing became feverish both as a distraction and as a means to produce the goods necessary for survival outside the warmth and familiarity of the ship. On the 10th of January, the ice forced a 10-foot hole in the hull, not far below the waterline, but far enough below the waterline to be permanently problematic by taking itself further below the waterline in short order. Bartlett gave the order to abandon ship. As his 24 companions bedded down in their snow shelters, the captain sat by the stove, playing his gramophone records, smashing each one into the fire as they came to an end, and as the water rose up through the Carluke. He saved Chopin's funeral march for last and stepped off his vessel, head bared, as she slowly sank below the ice. Chopin played on as the stove went out with a hiss and a roar, a cloud of steam carrying up the last of the music as the gramophone cranked out. On the 21st of January, Bartlett sent the first mate Sandy Anderson and six men, including two Inuit guides, to establish a camp on Wrangell Island, the large and remote, but at least not floating about on the currents and relatively biologically fecund outlier of solid ground north of the Siberian mainland, hoping they might make a stand against the winter, feeding themselves on Wrangell's relative bounty and arresting their ice-mediated drifting. The drifting of the ice threw Anderson's efforts out what navigation could be applied to the situation, leading his party to Herald Island. Anderson sent three of the party, including the two Inuit, back to Bartlett's camp with this information, and pushed on to see what, if anything, the imposing cliffs of the island hid from his sea-level view. At this point, the four-man scientific contingent, led by Dr Alistair Mackay, demanded a sledge, their fair portion of the supplies, and a similar cut of the remaining dog pack. Bartlett attempted to settle this mutiny with the steel will and commanding language and demeanour that a master mariner must be able to muster if they are to command a ship effectively. But the affable approach it employed in attempting to stave off widespread toastiness-enhanced panic had dented the respect a captain relies on to get shit done on his word. In spite of Bartlett's best efforts to outline the differences between sledging on the relatively flat expanses of the Antarctic Plateau ice Mackay experienced in his travels with Mawson and David, and the tortured, sledge-wrecking pressurised nightmares the Arctic can throw up, a realm made keenly familiar by Bartlett's time spent travelling in company with Dr Peary, the scientists were off, though he did get them to sign an affidavit absolving him of responsibility for their lives before they shot their bolt, departing for Wrangell Island with food for 50 days and 100 rounds of ammunition. Bartlett sent a party to try and reach first mate Anderson. The first attempt turned back in poor weather, but a second attempt came within sight of Herald Island. They could only observe it from across open water and saw no signs of life. On their return slog to the shipwrecked camp, this party encountered three of the scientists hauling their sledge. Entreaties to return to Bartlett's camp fell on deaf, frostbitten ears, and the sledges pushed on. Two miles further along in their tracks, a path littered with equipment discarded to lighten the sledge as the scientists weakened in their traces, Bartlett's scouting party encountered the anthropologist, 
Henri Beauchat, bitterly regretting his decision to leave Bartlett's care. With hands and feet frostbitten beyond hope of recovery, the wretched scientist carried on in the tracks left by his companions, a dead man stumbling along on frozen lumps of meat. Hapless, where Titus Oates, in a similar physical state, is deemed magnificently noble. The outcome's the same either way. Bartlett, employing his Arctic sledging experience working with Peary, established a series of supply depots to support a one-shot gambit at reaching Wrangell Island with the remainder of his crew. Two sledges, each pulled by five dogs and four men, comprised the advance party, spending six weeks carefully marshalling resources to the necessary staging points. Nine people followed in their tracks, with seven healthy dogs pulling the load and several injured and sick dogs hobbling along as a self-propelling larder. Bartlett earns a place in my heart as a man of integrity and compassion for his treatment of all in his care, but the fact that the children never went hungry, no matter how little he and his men had to eat, places him higher in my regard than many of the people I've lived and worked with or under. As the main body moved forward through the depot sites, the advance party met them coming back the other way, reporting rafters of pressure ice reaching as high as 100 feet and absolutely impassable in both directions. Asked what they meant in heading back along their own tracks, the men of the advance party admitted they were heading back to the shipwreck camp, though not with any particular ambition in mind beyond that. With no hope of anything other than diminishing returns of cannibalism lying in that direction, there they found subsequent drops and ascents lay in wait for them. With the bloody-mindedness of the truly fed up, Captain Bartlett kept everyone to task. A sledge at the top of one problematic structure formed a counterweight for the next, its descent helping the next in line make its ascent. Perhaps if they'd known eight miles of this nonsense lay in the future, Bartlett would have chucked his gumption and headed back to shipwreck camp to start in on the long pick. But he chivied his crew along, at one point sending Chafe, McKinley and Hadley back to shipwreck camp for more supplies. Twice during this mission, William McKinley came within inches of ending up inside a polar bear, too transfixed by the beauty of the predators to even think of seeking a rifle. On each occasion, John Hadley taking the shot that saved their lives and filled their larder. Smaller pressure rafters followed after the eight miles of huge ones, but the crew could navigate around rather than over these, and on the 12th of March, they reached Wrangell Island. No more drifting northward, no more creaking and groaning beneath their tents as the ice rafts threatened to open up and allow the sub-zero water below to swallow them. Sparse tracks in the snow indicated that what prey the island offered would not support a group the size of Bartlett's charges. Short of a sudden rush of polar bears and the necessary accurate and surefire shooting to keep the food chain operating in their favour, the party still faced slow starvation. With too many people and too few supplies to contemplate a second wholesale epic trek to follow on from the one they just completed, Captain Bartlett set out with one of the Inuit guides, Kataktovik, on the 18th of March, the urgency of the situation warranting their heading south in a snowstorm. The haul between Wrangell and mainland Siberia was a nightmare scenario of storms, open leads, broken sledge runners and young sea ice cracking underfoot. Bartlett and Kataktovik had to tie the dogs' mouths shut to prevent them eating their traces and the sledge bindings between scant meals available for them, though two bears and two seals killed on the trek helped make up the pemmican shortfall. Reaching the Siberian coast, the pair donned snowshoes and headed inland. Kataktovik 
deathly afraid of the treatment an Alaskan Inuit might expect at the hands of his culturally and genetically isolated Siberian counterparts. Two weeks and 200 miles after leaving Wrangell Island, his fears were put to rest as members of the Chukchukis tribe made the pair welcome and shared what little they could spare. That little didn't extend to fresh huskies, so Bartlett and Kataktovik carried on with their already well-flogged dogs. Another 500 miles to East Cape, arriving on the 25th of April after 37 days on the march. Though no ship was slated to travel to Nome, from where a rescue might be launched, until June at the earliest. After this extended period sustained only on protein, Bartlett's unaccustomed physiology reached breaking point. He fell ill and could barely raise himself to walk another step. It was in this state that a Russian bureaucrat presiding over the region met Bartlett and, on learning of the pitiful tale playing out on Wrangell Island, offered to convey him to Emma Harbour by sleigh. Still extremely ill, Bartlett accepted the offer and after a six-day journey through the snowy wilderness, began sending word out via any chuchkis he encountered that he sought Captain C.T. Pedersen of the Herman. Yes, that same Captain Pedersen who dodged the Kaluk bullet, leaving his billet open for Bartlett. The Herman sailed into Emma Harbour on the 21st of May and Pedersen took Bartlett to Nome, which was iced in and inaccessible. Pedersen instead took Bartlett to St Michael, arriving on the 27th of May. The wireless station was closed. Bartlett called in a favour from a US Marshal who'd also served with Peary and got the station opened. The wireless operator demanded he be paid in advance. Skint, and I think nearly apoplectic with frustration, Bartlett went into favoured debt with the US Marshal and the word went out to Ottawa. The outside world clamoured to learn more of this mysterious revenant from the north, but Bartlett only wanted to discuss rescue, entreating the US, Canadian and Russian governments to make every possible effort. Bartlett tried every means to get moving toward Wrangell Island himself, his best bet coming in the form of the US revenue cutter, Bear. The Bear sailed from Nome on the 13th of July, but was turned back while 20 miles short of Wrangell Island by a shortage of coal. A Russian icebreaker got to within 10 miles of Wrangell, but the outbreak of the First World War brought new orders, and the crew turned the vessel around. Finally, on the 8th of September, aboard the Bear, Bartlett's mission came to its conclusion as he met the Wrangell Island survivors coming south aboard the schooner, King and Wing. McKinley, Chafe, the Inuit family and six others survived, though mostly with severe protein poisoning, the illness having killed two of the other men left behind. The Wrangell Island party, plagued by extreme toastiness after Bartlett's departure, split up and spread out, separating fractious factions and increasing the area over which the hunters of the party could operate without trenching of what little game existed in each other's patch. Breddy, the fireman aboard the Kaluk, was found shot through the eye in his tent, the death being determined a suicide, though examination of the tent contents revealed pilfered objects from other party members and toasty rumours of a toasty murder circulated. The King and Wing arrived on the 7th of September and the survivors gathered what possessions they still possessed and cooked up as much of the food as they had to hand, eager, after so much protracted privation, not to waste any of their carefully husbanded resources, before staggering across three miles of sea ice to the ship on their bloated, protein-addled limbs. The King and Wing attempted to reach Herald Island to seek after Anderson's party, but heavy pack ice prevented their getting close enough to put a party ashore. In 1928, 
the Herman finally visited Herald Island, where the crew found four skeletons and the ragged remains of a tent. Herald Island's cliffs hide from a sea level view the fact that Herald Island is a barren rock. First mate Anderson and his party starved to death following the orders of a captain doing his utmost to save the lives in his care. Stephenson, responding to damning newspaper article about the Kaluk tragedy, posed a false equivalence between the scientific gains of his voyage and the ambitions of those who fought in the First Matt, World War. Matt, Christian. Christian, this is Matt, go ahead. Hey Matt, you want to start making your way back and maybe pick up the one guest that's between here and the hangar? On my way, thank you. I'll pick this up back on the ship. Oh. Okay, this time, Half Moon Island in a chinstrap colony with heavy snow. Where was I? Stephenson, responding to damning newspaper articles about the Carlock tragedy, posed a false equivalence between the scientific gains of his voyage and the ambitions of those who fought in the First World War. Another dog move. Regardless how badly the stated motives that acted as the spurs that sent soldiers to the bloody moor of that conflict reflected the political and economic realities that set the stage for the First World War, Stephenson's rhetoric on the matter comprises an ill-conceived mishmash of self-aggrandisement and assertions that scientists and those who support their efforts should accept the risk of death as willingly as soldiers not encountered in the series since Never the Thinking Sandy? Yeah, I just don't know like it's not sun because I would need to be where it's slippery over there. I'll, I'll take it for you. Yeah? Yeah. Right time there, right? Sorry? Yeah, right there. I'll be back down here. Okay. Because it's pretty slippery. It's like the last day it's not time for ankle injury or knee injury. No. Cool, thank you. Maybe we can just give it to a passenger, I don't know. I'll I'll get up in a second. I need some ambient sound. Stephenson's rhetoric on the matter comprises an ill-conceived mishmash of self-aggrandisement and assertions that scientists and those who support their efforts should accept the risk of death, death as willingly as soldiers, which we haven't encountered in the series since the Bushido-mediated statements of General Suchia Mitsuhara in episode 42. Back in a minute. Well, devil. William McKinley, who both drifted aboard the Kaluk after Stephenson's abandonment and fought in the First World War, took particular and justified umbrage at his former leader's front in so writing off the lives of people he failed to look after in the manner any leader worthy of the noun would consider their minimum responsibility. McKinley's carefully accumulated notes about Stephenson's shortcomings form a pretty damning indictment against his former leader. The Royal Northwest Mounted Police report on the stranding of the Kaluk 
suggested Stephenson's actions in going hunting when he did constituted a suspicious move, but fell short of actually calling his decision manslaughter through dereliction of duty. Stephenson's own writing on his adventure, in light of the suffering his incompetence and arrogance caused, reads as supremely callous, perhaps even sociopathic, in its lack of empathy. Captain Robert Bartlett received the Royal Geographic Society's prestigious Back Grant for his efforts to save his crew from ice-beset cannibalistic doom and took charge of an icebreaker. He sailed northern waters for a further 30 years before dying of pneumonia in New York at a well-deserved ripe old age. While most of those who departed the Kaluk with him emerged from the north after just a year, Wilhelma Stephenson showed up in 1918, having faffed about for five years. His carelessness with other people's lives placed a small number of new islands on our charts, and not a lot more. No copper Eskimos, for what their existence and our knowledge of same might have been worth. No landmass where Peary claimed one existed. No valuable resources mapped. Stephenson's next venture was a colony on Wrangell Island, sending four men and one woman north with supplies enough to last six months, expecting his colonists to hunt for their food for the subsequent year and a half. Only the woman survived the ordeal. Stephenson attempted to keep the deaths quiet, and when anyone mentioned the hapless settlers, he claimed they died because they did not follow his instructions. Arrogant wanker. Stephenson provided us with the Amundsonian quote, An adventure is a sign of incompetence. Everything you add to an explorer's heroism, you have to subtract from his intelligence. I think I'll hold him to that, and account the large dose of heroic incompetence his writing affords him. Now, that's a lot of Arctic history for a series about Antarctica, but there is a connection that makes this digression something more than a test run for a possible follow-up series about Arctic history that might, one day, follow in Ice Coffee's dark roasted footsteps. The connection is George Hubert Wilkins' involvement in the expedition that led to the death of Alistair Mackay. Hubert Wilkins will form the focus of, or act as an auxiliary player in, several future episodes of Ice Coffee, so I've put the effort in to give listeners some context for events affecting Hubert Wilkins' relationship with Australia's far better known High Latitudes explorer, Douglas Mawson, but I'll address those matters in chronological sequence. On to my diatribe about seasickness. I have an eigenface, a generic build and a bland accent. Unless someone sees the distinctive scar on my leg, I'm pretty unmemorable and at a first pass, few people bother to expend much mental runtime on committing me to memory. Leading to me once going unrecognised by a colleague of 20 years acquaintance, albeit after a 10 year break between encounters, until I wore shorts to their workplace and they clocked my scar. Matt, good to see you. What have you been up to lately? Up, um, working in the lab next door to yours for the past week. Really? You should join us for lunch sometime. Oh, um, okay, okay, wait, what? I've eaten lunch with the department every day I've been here. I sat across from you twice. Oh, well, if you'd propped your leg on the table, I would have said hello earlier. Yes, my leg has a more memorable presence than my face, but there's one other thing about me that sticks in the minds of those I've spent time at sea with. I get seasick. In almost any conditions, and on almost any size vessel, I turn green and vomit shortly after untying from the wharf. Usually this is over and done with on the first few hours of the voyage, but I have experienced some long periods of sustained nausea and vomiting before finding my sea legs, 
most recently in my first crossing of the Drake Passage. I still managed to get my work done and I've never made a mess of my cabin or the mess or anyone else's workspace because I learnt a long time ago to take every sick bag I can get my hands on from the positioning flights that take me to the port in which I join my vessel. Armed with two or three waxed paper bags in my pocket, I can get about the ship, get my work done, vomit into a bag, get some more work done, nibble the banana, throw the banana back up into a bag and get back to my cabin again for a nap and to refresh my sick bag supply without getting sick on anything or anyone. This party trick once earned me the hard to garner respect of the sampling equipment engineers on a research vessel. Well, perhaps not respect, but less disdain. During a toolbox meeting, all of us sitting around a chart on the area we were about to survey, I was holding forth about my equipment, how it worked and which parts could take a finger off if you grabbed it anywhere other than the handles, and I turned my attention to the chart and began to explain where I needed to take my samples, and why, when my nausea overcame me. I pulled the sick bag from my breast pocket, vomited into it, rolled the lip of the bag down to keep the contents from escaping, and returned to my talking points. Scientists, with their fascination for the oddest things and their tendency to want to actually use the precious sampling equipment the engineers have worked so hard to fabricate, calibrate and transport to the worksite, tend to be regarded with some derision by these engineers. But I was later told by independent witnesses to this moment of non-glory on the bridge of the RV Southern Surveyor that my could-not-give-a-fuck nonchalance about my vomiting made the engineers respect me a bit more. Not enough to get me out of derision, but a bit more. This was partly a brave face put on a miserable situation, and partly a recognition that I put my hand up for this career, and that I'd better not let my weak stomach prevent me from getting my work done. It costs a lot to put a beaker, which is engineer speak for a scientist, on a ship, and I couldn't afford to let slip on responsibilities that could have fallen to someone else. It's not an enviable title, most seasick marine scientists in Australia, and I don't expect anyone to try to knock me off that low pedestal, but if that's who I am, I'm going to make damn sure I am remembered for it for the right reasons. That's why I'm going to map out for you, dear listener, what I've learnt about making seasickness the least miserable an experience possible. It's still miserable, but these hints and tips may help make it less bad than it might be. If you need to apply these hints, you have my sympathies. I'm sometimes told the bright side is that people who experience seasickness don't experience space sickness, but given that's likely based on a correlation in a small number of people who've been both to sea and into space, rather than a well-supported hypothesis recognising causation, and as I'm unlikely to go into space, it's a pretty dim bright side. If you never need to apply these hints because you've got iron guts and you never experience even the mildest nausea when at sea or on the rolliest boat in the worst weather, I hate you and will bang your head on the gunnel if you try to be funny at me while I'm feeding the fish. Hint 1. Get off the caffeine. Coffee is fantastic and tea is okay, but in addition to giving you the caffeine buzz, they make you pee a lot and they taste fucking awful after they've fought it out with your gastric juices for even a short time. The bitter flavour that plays such a crucial role in the coffee experience is deeply unpleasant on the second pass when coupled with stomach acid and bile, so I quit drinking coffee for about a week before joining any vessel. This prevents me needing to find the head more often than is necessary and prevents me seeking out the coffee making facilities in the initial stages of the voyage, both of these relating to point three, and also preventing me having to fight it out with a caffeine withdrawal headache while I'm seasick. Once I get my sea legs, I can catch up my caffeine intake 
but getting to that stage with a full bladder, a sore head, and the taste of secondhand coffee laced with bile is not worth it. Get your caffeine withdrawal out of the way while you're ashore, and don't get back in with the bean until you know you can handle the calls to the cafe and the head that that places on your body. Hint 2. Take your meds. No one likes having to swallow pills or load their system with medications and their side effects, but there are some seasick remedies that work. And I'm only talking about medications here. Herbal attempts at preventing seasickness involving ginger and ginseng have done nothing to prevent my turning green and vomiting, and the aftertaste of ginger-laced vomitus alone makes me angry at whomever invented these things. Just because something comes in a gel capsule doesn't mean it will work, and if a medication purports to have no secondary effects, you can be fairly sure it has no primary effects too, because physiology is like that. If you try to push physiology in one direction with some chemistry, that same chemistry will have orthogonal but very real vectors in other directions too. If there are no side effects, you're most likely swallowing a big old placebo and filling some crunchy granola bigwig's pockets with your hard-earned coin. Get some pharmaceuticals in you. I won't mention brand names, but ask around your local maritime characters and the name that turns up most often, which doesn't feature the word herbal anywhere on the packaging, is probably your best local bet. Take your chemical of choice exactly as instructed on the notes you get with the tablets. Usually you need to start taking them before you get to the wharf, let alone aboard your vessel. And it's usually a failure to heed this key piece of the puzzle that leads to people complaining that the seasickness medication didn't work. Or they bought something with herbal, or side effect free, on the packaging. Hint 3. Try to stay in one spot. That's hard advice to follow if you have a job to do. But if you're a passenger or on downtime from your allotted tasks, find somewhere you can make your own for a while and stay there. If that spot is on a beanbag somewhere near the centre of motion, so much the better. But I've made do with what I can, where I can, in order to negate one variable from the motion sickness equation, that being the change in motion that comes with a change of position in a moving vessel. On one voyage, I made myself a nest of ropes and wet weather clothing in the wet lab and stayed there between sample shots, napping, reading, vomiting and taking and processing sediment samples when the ship reached the sites I wanted to deploy my gear. This saved me braving the labyrinth down to my cabin and the multiple changes in motion each step and each turn inflicted on my overwhelmed vestibular system. Again, once you get your sea legs, the vessel is yours to explore, within the boundaries set by the crew. But if you can stay where you need to be for as long as possible, until you get your sea legs, you can cut down the number of sick bags you need significantly. Hint 4. Eat something. Not only is your system under pressure from the stresses of constant nausea, the unpleasant spasming associated with bringing food back up against the peristaltic motion your throat is geared for, and experiencing the horrible tastes and mouthfeel caused by stomach fluids getting where they normally don't get to, you're not getting any nutrients from the food that you're not holding down. A day of missed meals is a big hit to your system, and your body will be crying out for carbohydrates, and I recommend bananas as the answer to this call. You can carry a couple in the pockets that are not full of sick bags, cutting down your visits to the mess. You can nibble one for several hours without ever needing to swallow a large mouthful, which can feel unpleasant when you're feeling crook. Best of all, bananas don't taste as bad as most other things when you bring them back up. That's not to say they taste good on their second pass, but just less bad than anything else you might eat. Having taken small nibbles and chewed them thoroughly, they'll also be free of the lumps and chunks that hurt so much as they make their way back up your esophagus, so that's a bonus. A diet of briefly held down bananas won't prevent you losing a few kilos in the course of a multi-day bout of seasickness, 
but they will give you more nutrients than nothing, and they'll give you something to bring up if your body decides it really needs to be rid of them more than it needs the nutrients, and this saves you from the alarming horrors of the dry heaves. Hint 5. Similarly, you'll need to drink something. No, not alcohol. What are you, an imbecile? Oh, well, anyway, don't opt for booze. That will only make things worse for you and anyone on whose person or gear you upchuck your intake. Water will seem the most soothing nectar you've ever tasted after a day of vomiting, and lying in my rope nest, alternating between nibbles of banana and sips of water between samples and vomits, is far from the worst experience of my life. It's closer to the worst experience of my life than a lot of other things, but it's still a long way from the worst experience itself. Likely you won't need to visit the head to pee much, because your sipped water intake will be replacing the water you've lost through vomiting, and your kidneys will be operating in desert mode. Hint 6. Hang in there. It does come to an end. You will eventually come good, and once you have your sea legs you'll appreciate food in a way people who've never lived through what you've lived through can never understand. Head to the mess, fill your plate with piles of what pleases you, eat it with gusto, and repeat. You will feel fucking amazing and go about your tasks with an aplomb missing from your jaded colleagues and a jaunty seafarer's step your non-seasick companions haven't earned in the same way you have. You have my sympathy for your tribulations and my respect for the tenacity that got you through them with the minimum of fuss. Well done you. Various erratum. In episode 50, I mentioned that Frank Hurley worked up as a settle generator practical joke to vex the magnetician, Webb but it was actually Close who was on Nightwatch when the vigorous bubbling prompted his alarmed waking of Mawson and the leader's laconic response to the faux explosive doom they faced. I also mentioned that Mawson kept the working day short, only requiring three hours of graft from his team, but that was not correct. It was Frank Wilde, out with the Western Party, who kept his team on a short working day, where Mawson required considerably more industry under his supervision. Pat Lurcock a veteran of decades working at South Georgia, informed me that I've been mispronouncing the name of the whaling station founded by Carl Anton Larsen, which is pronounced Gritviken, not Gritviken, which makes very little sense when you see it written down my script, but hopefully I'll be getting that one correct from now on. In episode 13, I mentioned it was Filchner operating from the Gauss who debunked the existence of Morell Land when he was actually operating from the Deutschland, the Gauss having sailed a decade earlier under Drogelski's command. Something interesting I came across in a book unrelated to the topics at hand but offering an interesting insight to the outdoor life at high latitudes is Otto Nordenwald's observations regarding a pea that found its way into his bedding during his time in Antarctica. The sleeping bags of the day, already noted as magnets for the condensation from people's breath and the primus stove, provided conditions in which the pea in question germinated and tried to take root. Deprived of sunlight, the resulting sprout was pale and short-lived but still an impressive display of the tenacity of life as it attempted to get on with living in the fuggy foot end of a dead reindeer hide on a barren island in a frozen sea. You go, life. It was in the same book that I came across an edifying description of what it was like to don frozen finesco, and I provide it here because otherwise I'll forget to include it anywhere. The mouth of the frozen boot was held in contact with the foot until the body warmth thawed the skin enough to make further ingress, but before that could happen, the foot needed withdrawing and rewarming with the hands. Then, 
Assuming the rewarming took less time than it took the boot to refreeze, the foot went back in to thaw the next stage. This process could take hours and must have felt hellish for anyone already suffering blisters from trekking and frostbites and stands as just another reason I love living in an era of better boots than my predecessors in the heroic era had to deal with. Pronunciation of Waddell continues to hang in the balance with several of my new colleagues using the pedals version. What are you going to do? Go back and re-record? What do I look like? A guy who's not lazy? My pronunciation of Borkgrevink has also come under close scrutiny. Borschgrevink, or Bosch, Borschgrevink, Borschgrevink, being the preferred combination of syllables and glottals hereabouts. I always knew my French pronunciation was rubbish, but I was told so in short order by a native Quebecois speaker, who encouraged me to say de Mont de Ville, as opposed to whatever Frankish abomination I previously inflicted on listeners. I'm pretty sure I'm still not getting it French enough, and may well just mention him as that guy on the Astrolabe from now on. Either way, cheers, Francoise. Again, if you spot anything amiss in the narrative, please get in touch so I can correct the matter in future erratum sessions. When I released episode 50, I took the unusual step of doing some advertising, posting links to the series at various Antarctica-related Facebook pages, and using a free voucher from Facebook to do some signal boosts. For this £30 voucher, I got my Facebook post in front of 2,000 users, garnering three page views and a like. But by posting to pages dedicated to Antarctica, I got some correspondence going with Demeter, working at McMurdo Station and current frontrunner in the competition to win whatever it was I slated as a prize for the first person to send evidence they're listening to the series while below the circle. And Evan, who's putting together a podcast of geographical tidbits called Off the Map, which I'm excited about listening to, and which I mention here to put him on the hook to get the project off the ground, so to speak. Evan paid me a big compliment, commenting that I speak about the people featured in the series as though I know them and care about them, and I really like that idea. If you're interested in Antarctica enough to listen to me banging on about it, I think it's likely you know someone else who is similarly inclined. If you haven't already done so, please pass word of the series along, as it looks like paid advertising isn't an avenue I'll be following up three page views and a like. I won't snub it. I'll take the stage for two and a dog, but I won't pay for that privilege. With that grumpitude in mind, shout out to Philip and Shirley, whom I sat next to on the flight between Melbourne and Santiago, as they made their first foray out of Australia, slated to include a voyage to Antarctica. I didn't advertise very effectively at you, face to face, but I hope your evident interest in the continent and its history led you to the series under your own steam. Fair winds, dear, and appreciate your coffee. Mm.